This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger's been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. Con Giovanni, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. It's the history of the Tottenham. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. The January transfer window is now open. We're approaching the halfway mark of the month, but there has predictably been very little activity so far. However, Manchester United showed last season the value in taking advantage of the opportunity to bring in someone. Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast. I'm your host, Declan Harris, and joining me is Andrew Conway. Hello, Declan. Andrew, will we see a Bruno Fernandes-type signing from anybody this year? I, I wouldn't put it beyond the realm of possibility. You know, Bruno Fernandes, while not coming from nowhere, you know, he did up his game a fair bit from, you know, doing quite well in Portugal, but always being thought of, oh, this guy isn't cut out to be a at a top club and, and really did turn Man United's fortunes around and has continued to propel them uh, towards, you know, whatever you want to call what United are experiencing at the moment, some form of success and, you know, maybe Europa League triumph. Who knows what happens down the line? Um, th- there is budget available there for certain clubs. I don't think Liverpool are going to be one of those clubs that are going to get the opportunity to do it, but certainly Manchester City ha- are in the market um, and have been looking for the right kind of player. I think given that you're expecting less and less game time from the likes of uh, Fernandinho and um, there's the jury's still out on a few of the younger players they've signed in, in the recent years, I think City could well be in, in the market for somebody. Um, in an attacking form, which is always exciting, and maybe a Bruno Fernandes type character could be in there. Um, away from from them, I don't think there's going to be many clubs doing the doing that sort of business. Um, just just thinking about Manchester United themselves, I don't know if they could make any signings like that. I know there's been paper talk linking Paul Pogba away from United toward back towards uh, Paris Saint Germain, where. Apparently, Pochettino has made him the number one target for the summer. I don't know if you can you can take that with a pinch of salt. But if Pogba were to leave, or if something like that could be arranged, who would United try and sign to to fill that midfield gap that would he would leave behind? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one for Man to figure out. Like in, in many ways, I suppose that could be the role Donny van der Beek ends up taking in, in the end. Even though they aren't they aren't exactly similar players, it's very hard no. to find a, a like for like replacement for Pogba. So it might actually lead to a kind of change in idea and bringing in a different type of midfielder, yeah. which uh, is probably which, the right thing to do. <laughs> which is what Donny van der Beek is like. He's a totally different kind of player. Maybe that would that would free up kind of a space in the team for him to play, uh, especially with that kind of diamond formation. That they've been playing lately, that might suit suit Van der Beek a bit better. Um, if they can get, if they want to crowbar in him and Fernandez into the same team, because I, I I know he did play over the weekend, Van der Beek. Uh, but they keep playing him in playing him in that double pivot role as a six, which I don't think really is what Van der Beek is. Not at his like best, he, anyway. Like he played holding midfield at time for Ajax, and he actually was quite good at it. He played that deep lying playmaker role as well, and. He, I remember him doing, I think he did in the Real Madrid match, which I believe he scored in that second leg in the Bernabeu for Ajax back two years ago. Um, so he is capable of it. But then again, I don't know, the, you know, as they say, the Premier League is a different pace than playing Spanish sides and playing in the Champions League and playing in the Dutch League. So I don't know if he has the physical required to play that role there. Yeah, so like I, I kind of get why he's not been in the team. Like I, I think that's a long-term project Solskjaer's working on. Either that, or uh, maybe the more likely thing is he was given the player and just took the player and doesn't know what to do with them now. Like it, it's a that's that's the rumor is what happened. Yeah, it's one of those two options. Um, but then going back to Man City, like they've done uh work in in the market before. Usually just to bring in a striker because didn't they bring in Wilfred Wilfer Bonnet for like. 28 30 million from Swansea years ago under Pellegrini but they yep. they brought in Gabriel Jesus as well uh, in the giant transfer window so maybe we'll see another striker like with Aguero not really playing at the moment and Jesus not really performing yeah uh so maybe they could be in the market for another striker um because it does look like they will need one sooner rather than later if uh I mean Aguero is on his last legs and if they don't have the faith and if they don't have the faith in Gabriel Jesus to get the job done yeah, well, Kevin De Bruyne playing as centre-forward as he was in that, uh, was it the League Cup match that he was playing centre-forward in? Yeah. 
against Man United, you know, and it worked out for them. I I wouldn't be I wouldn't fancy it that much given the kind of play you have to you have to be very good at a certain type of football to play without a as a focal point in, in the team and you know using the wingers as a as those runners it, it it can work against certain teams i don't see how it would work against uh you know teams that would play everyone behind the ball for the 90 minutes which city would face most weeks um but then again you know i wrote off the city team only weeks ago and now there are a lot of people's favorites for the league which i still find a bit baffling but you know i'm i'm here to be proven wrong it's still a long way in the season to go, I guess. Yeah. But there, there's also Liverpool as well, who you mentioned that they, they've been linked with buying uh, Botman at centre-back. Um, so, like, they, like they have been linked heavily with a centre-back in general. So I think it would be it would be interesting if they bought one because then what do they do if that person performs and with Fabinho and then Van Dijk and Joe Gomez come back? Like, obviously, Van Dijk will go back in the side, but what would happen with Joe Gomez? Well, Joe um, Gomez isn't coming back anytime soon, and neither is... Uh... Van Dyke really, so I think multiple occasions, um, including at the weekend when a, a youth team from Aston Villa managed to score against them. Um, it kind of shows you the 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 price you pay a defender who actually knows how to play the position in the in the role because that's really what the cost. Yeah, and I suppose when they're playing the likes of Jordan Henderson in, in at centre back, it's well, it's looking. Pretty obvious. The center half, like he, he's good at filling the role. He's good at tackling at times. Doesn't have the sense of anticipation that you only get from playing the position over a prolonged period of time and years in this case. And he's a bit away from that. Even Javier Mascherano, he he played the last like five years of his mainstream European career in center half and he still didn't have the timings right by the time yeah, he finished so. it's going to be interesting to see what they do now going forward if they don't sign a center back because I think Fabinho was filled in well alongside Matip like I think kind of the two of them paired well together because there's less of a leadership role needed by Fabinho where you can just kind of follow uh, Matip's yeah. lead there but when it was him and Henderson there were definitely times where it looked like Southampton were going to get him behind but they kind of overplayed themselves a bit and Liverpool got away with it um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see like what they do because what Liverpool, whatever Liverpool do in the January transfer window, will probably be very short termist because it will be filling a hole um, that they've had to do because of injuries. It's not going to be a part of a long term vision that they've got, which is what they normally do. Um, you know, everything there is very meticulously planned out in the transfer window, so it would be very uncharacteristic for them to do it, but. At the same time, maybe they will be for like their hand will be forced into it just because they can't play Jordan Henderson and Fabinho as centre back for the rest of the season. Yeah, like they've done the hard things in the transfer window so far. They've managed to keep hold of players that were wanted by other clubs. They've managed to keep their strike force intact, and they've managed to integrate Diego Jota into the side quite well. Um, so there there is leeway in that squad to to spend the money on on a defender maybe if if there is one required given the injuries they have and. Also, there's there's a bit of make weight in that in that team as well. I know they have a lot of young, good young players who've got some good minutes this, so far this season. Maybe they could be sold or at least loaned out. And, and you have the likes of uh, of um, Shakiri uh, and uh, Origi, who were both apparently surplus to requirements, and they themselves could, you know, make make room in the squad for for maybe a more defensive signing. Yeah, I might see some last-ditch kind of loan deals there because I, I think my United as well. I, I saw the phrase from Solskjaer saying about some of some of the players they're looking to sell that they deserve to play which is funny because like if they deserve to play then they could play for my united but obviously he doesn't truly believe they deserve to play yeah. because that's why they're on the bench or they're not even on the bench half the time uh, yeah. which i just thought was a funny funny way for him to phrase it yeah he's just trying to well Solskjaer, he's just trying to be nice i guess yeah he's a politician like he's very good at it and he's trying to keep the all the players on side i'm sure Juan Mata does not want to hear that he's not good enough for Manchester United anymore. You know, if he's one of those players who doesn't get much game time anymore and, you know, is, is still decent enough at this level. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens at United. I, I, I wouldn't be, and a lot of other clubs as well, I wouldn't be sure how many buyers they can get for these players because they're on big wages or even loanees, you know, how much money you're actually saving by getting them away from the club. All you're doing is really paying, from, paying for them to pay for another club. Um, so and we're, we'll see what happens. We're still seeing as well the effects of the pandemic and we'll see where the next few months as teams accounts for the last year come out and we'll see just how much money they're losing because like if the few teams that have done like their annual accounts for the end of December, like we're already seeing 
that they're they're missing out on a lot of money already, like a lot of a lot of drops in revenue. And we saw it as well in, in the summer transfer window that the teams are a bit more cautious in the way they spent money in the market. And we've seen teams take out loans as well, like uh, Tottenham over the summer. Now Arsenal this week took out yeah. a 120 million pound loan from the Bank of England. So like obviously teams are a bit more strapped for cash than they're used to. So that's that's going to make an effect as well in, in the market. Yeah, the what was um, there was an estimate made that Arsenal could lose 198 million pounds if the pandemic continues for the rest of 2021. As in, they can't let people back in the ground because of the lost revenue. They could hit that number, which would be crazy for the traditionally Arsenal was a club that would always make a profit no matter what and would always have cash on hand. And for it to go that much into the red is, is uh, pretty damning on the way things are. You hate to think how probably less frugally run clubs elsewhere in the, in the divisions are doing um, if Arsenal are doing that poorly. The FA Cup went ahead this week, but not completely as planned. The football mess, the football schedule right now is a bit of a mess as well. It is. Aston Villa and Derby had to send out the kids and now we're seeing Premier League teams swapping opponents with only a couple of days notice. Like, what's going on here? Yeah, well, the, the swapping of opponents while... Like I, I think that's the Premier League firefighting the losing the integrity of the league because I think, especially given who was being played. Although you know we we, we both concede that probably Tottenham aren't going to win the league this season. They are technically in the race, so if they were to face a, a depleted Aston Villa side who have managed to put, you know they beat Liverpool this season. You know they they beat Arsenal although they're not really in it anymore. They they've beaten good sides this season, and if they were to put out the under nineteen teams delivered from a minibus from their digs. Um, it wouldn't really be fitting for a, a Premier League match and it wasn't really fitting for the FA Cup match but uh, you know they had to get it done um, the the flip side of that is Fulham technically might have to play two games in two days they might have played Chelsea on Friday after playing uh, Tottenham on, on Wednesday which is a pretty rough week for a team struggling near the foot of the table uh, and I feel for them as well but they've all had their COVID problems I think we're on the precipice of um like we hate to say it, but there could well be another lockdown coming in terms of the football side of things. Uh, I I don't know how they're going to fit the current schedule in the combined period of time they think they can fit this into, because at the moment it's I think Man City have to play as things stand. Man City have to play twice a week every week between now and the end of the season. I don't think Spurs are that far behind that or Chelsea, depending on on their progress in the European competitions. And, you know, as you creep down the table, if you start getting teams who are not in Europe having to play that much football, it starts becoming a bit crazy altogether. Yeah, like, I I think they've confirmed now that that Fulham game will, against Chelsea will go ahead on the Saturday, but that's still only one it's extra not day. It's much better, yeah. Um, so, like, that that is definitely tough for Fulham. And it's going to be, like, you're right, like, it's going to be tough to see how they, they fit in everything, even if there is no lockdown. Uh, and football continues completely as planned uh, going forward. Like, it's going to be hard to see how they fit everything in. Like, um, Dale Johnson uh, from ESPN, he's always very good at this kind of thing. He broke it down on Twitter and has a nice little graphic made of, like, just how tight the schedule is for both Man City and Tottenham. Like, they're the two teams, the two teams who are in the League Cup final now, they're, they're, they're the two most affected by this because they've, like, this is the weird conundrum with the football calendars. Basically, you're being punished for winning. Um, and this has been a thing before uh, the pandemic. Like this is a conversation that's been had for a good number of years now. Like you get punished for winning because it gives you extra games to play, and you know the the teams that get knocked out in the second or third round of the league cup get to rest um, those weeks, yeah. and that becomes an, it's a, a privilege. A, a, it's a it privilege is. To be, yeah. Um. So it's going to be a struggle. Like the the graphics that that Dale Johnson made as well. Like were without even factoring in how good or how well these two teams might do in the FA Cup. So, like, if they go far, if they end up meeting in the final there as well, um, they could end up, you know, playing a, a ton of games in such a little amount of time um, that I, I don't know if it's even physically possible for the players. Like, they they could end up in a situation where they have no COVID cases and still have to send out the under-19s uh, like Aston Miller did. Um, it could, like, it could get that absurd. And it is, like... When you factor in the, the the fact that like that's without a lockdown happening, like if they do have to take a two or three week break or a month long break, then it just becomes impossible. And there's going to have to be uh, big compromises made uh, if they're to have a lockdown. Uh, and I, I don't see that coming to pass. Like anytime a news story has come out, like you, you mentioned to me there before we recorded that the Chelsea Academy team 
has been affected by that. I think uh, they said it was 20 infections uh, on the news story, uh, 20 positive yeah. uh, COVID-19 cases. So like if that creeps into the the first team, you know, that's going to create massive problems for them. But every time one of these stories comes out, it's all, oh, no, they're confident football can continue. You know, they're just going to march on through it. And it just seems so irresponsible and reckless. Like it's it's kind of baffling at the moment. Yeah, like it, like it's it's unlikely to believe that no one from the Chelsea Academy, no coach, no player, was around a first team player from the Chelsea first team or a first team coach from the Chelsea first team, like Jody Morris or any of the physios or the team doctors or the kitmen. You know, there, there's no doubt in my mind that they've been around each other and therefore exposed whether they have COVID or not. It's a different situation, but it, at this point, when it when it's spreading at the rampant pace that it is, when it's coming, like it's it's cutting off entire squads the way it did Tottenham or not Tottenham the way it did um, Aston Villa earlier this month and continues to keep them in in quarantine the way it did with Newcastle previously. Like it's only a matter of time before that happens again. I know there's there's we I we haven't really mentioned Scottish football, but there's a big thing happening with Celtic at the moment with positive case and how they will refuse to be retested and they want to play the game against Hibernian and then Hibernian players are apparently reluctant to even feel themselves against that Celtic team for fear of their own personal safety uh, from the disease, uh, which is very concerning when you think about it. Um, so that could result in a, in a in a big scandal coming from Scotland. And if it's happening up there at the Scottish Premiership level, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens at the Championship level or maybe even the Premier League level down in England. We've seen it as well in um, the women's game. The women's Super League saw a number of teams basically do the same thing that Celtic did and went off on trips and uh, to, to Dubai, I think, as well. And they've come back with positive cases and it's ended up being... It's just as much of a mess uh, in the women's game, which, you know, the pandemic applies to both sides yeah. of the game. Yeah. Uh, so, like, it, it's it's very reckless to see uh, football uh, acting like there's at least the Premier League clubs of, like, it's seemingly those players are picking it up. Like, obviously, we've had a few instances of players going out to New Year's parties and whatever, but it seems like players are just, you know, because of the new strain, they're more susceptible to picking up in, in normal everyday life, and that's what's happening. Uh, which is normal uh, and to be expected, I guess. But uh, the fact that football is just ploughing on, nevertheless, is is quite strange. And yeah, it's it's like I've just seen the news story that 30, 36, 38 uh, positive cases on the next uh, round of Premier League testing there uh, that just came out. So like it remains to be seen what will happen out of that. Which It's actually lower than before, which I suppose is good, but it's only about four cases uh, fewer than last time. So like that's it's it's a growing concern and it's a it's trending upwards really uh long term and it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how they they write themselves out of this one uh you know because it, it's it's reaching a breaking point yeah and it's not going to be particularly nice for anyone involved. uh then as i mentioned tottenham and man city will face each other in the league cup final they won their semi-finals uh last week tottenham won uh two nil against brentford it was it was a pretty close game that one Despite the the gulf in quality, I suppose between the two teams, or the, uh, the gulf in stature, I suppose is yeah. more the appropriate term. I'd, I'd expect Brentford to be, you know, probably a Premier League side this time next year, if not another failed bid in the playoffs, uh, which maybe suits the club better than getting promoted. Um, but they they are a good side. But Tottenham got the early goal in that match, and I thought it was over as soon as that happened. To be honest, I didn't think Brentford had the ability to break down that 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 staunch Tottenham defence. They had a few opportunities, but I think it was uh, Mourinho wanted that cup final, and after the early goal, I think it was it was the writing was on the wall in that match. And then it was a match to Derby, another semi final, and it was a fourth semi final defeat in a row for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and it's a fourth final for Guardiola in this competition in a row. Like, what, what's going on with Mourinho and Guardiola? Why did they keep trying to win this thing? Well, I think they they build they like building a a cult of of winning things of of getting trophies i think it's important for them they also love the thing as you said earlier you you made reference to it the the habit of winning matches is a good one to get into uh, especially with these type of players and these type of teams that are at the top and they always have to be fighting and maintain that hunger and you know throwing the towel in for one match every now and again the way that you know other teams might be able to do for the league cup or, or fa cup is a is a difficult pill for these managers to swallow, and and they put a lot of um, I don't know identity and a lot of hope into these uh, cup competitions to, to show that something is uh, is worthy from their season that they've achieved something in their time at the club, and um, 
yeah, I think I think at this point it's it's you know Mourinho's always loved the League Cup win. He always thinks it's the 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 starting point from which he can build further success. And I think uh, Pep Guardiola might just be after Liverpool's record at this point. Yeah, it's uh you know you're right that Jose Mourinho was the one that kind of started this trend because immediately after they won the the League Cup, then Ferguson started winning it. Then you know we've got to Pep Guardiola now is trying to win it constantly. Like if they win the final now, that'll be four League Cup wins in a row. Uh, which would be I, I don't know if that's ever been done before. I don't think it has. I think Liverpool might have done it in the eighties. Okay, but they um, used to do the same thing. Like they'd use it as a, a springboard for the rest of their endeavors during the season. They get it over with early enough, and they'd have it as okay. They've won the milk cup again this year, or whatever it was called at the time. And I can see why you would target the league cup just because it comes so early. Like it's the earliest point in the season in which you can actually win. Silverware, the Community Shield, you know, notwithstanding. Um, so, like, if you get that under your belt, come what would normally be February, it's April at the moment for this year, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. But uh, normally it's the funny. finals, yeah, a League Cup final in empty stadium would almost be kind of appropriate for that yeah. competition, uh, especially between Man City and and Tottenham as well. But uh, uh or between Mourinho and Guardiola. Um, but. Uh, like the fact that you can win it in February, you know, then you can kind of give up on the FA Cup, I guess, because, you know, you've already won your domestic trophy. You can focus more on your league endeavors and whatever happens at the end of it, you've got a trophy. Um, Because we've never seen a team win the quadruple. Like we've never seen, we've seen teams win the League Cup and the FA Cup, but we've never seen someone then go on to win the league or the Champions League at the same time. Uh, So like normally, like it just goes to show how difficult it is to to win on four fronts that it's never been done before. Um, yeah, so, the, the, I can see why they they targeted this one because like they both both these managers have won the FA Cup as well. Mourinho was very successful in the FA Cup when he first arrived in England, but hasn't won it now in a long time. Um, and Guardiola only only won it once as well. So like uh, the FA Cup itself is also more difficult to win just because it has that legacy and that history, and there's. There's more room for an upset there because you're more likely to meet a side beneath beneath your level that will try that bit harder. Whereas I feel like if... Because like Wigan have done Man City now a few times and I feel like if Wigan played Man City in the League Cup, it would be a bit of an easier ride uh, yeah. for Man City just because it's the League Cup. Like, you know, if you win it... Like, I'm sure Swansea and Birmingham enjoyed their days out, um, but it's not the same as, say, when Wigan actually won the FA Cup. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them as equal uh, in the... No in the stakes of which was a bigger achievement. Um, so like, it kind of makes sense why they're a bit easier to win as well. If the two, for the two of them, like they are at the biggest teams, they're the biggest squads, like Man City get through those early rounds by just resting a load of their players and still having a load, a load of quality players off the bench that they can play. So like, it makes sense as well that they, they keep doing this. Yeah. I still stand by the fact that no European qualified team should be in the league cup and, it would make it a far more entertaining prospect and also reduce some of this fixture congestion we face uh, around this time of the year as a result of it. But yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I don't, at this point, we're very far out. Um, my my early inclination is despite that Mourinho wanting it more, I, I feel Pep might go and win it again because of earlier defeats in the season to Mourinho's Tottenham side that there'll be revenge in the offing. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. It'll be an interesting one, you know, just to see how it plays out. Like, will there be fans? Like, what what will the state of the world look like in, in April? Who knows? I, I don't um, see a great deal different in terms of, uh, certainly in terms of football. I think there's still yeah. fans, unless there's a dramatic change in, in, in turn of events and things that remarkably better by then. But I'm sensing that if, if football is still going ahead, if we're still having a Euros, we haven't even spoken about that. Uh, but yeah, I, I still say it'll be behind closed doors and it'll be a very, uh, I wonder will Mourinho and Pep start having to fight on the touchline? That's my prediction at the moment. Yeah, because wasn't it the League Cup final in 2005 that, that Mourinho got into a, a tussle with the Liverpool? Uh, was it Liverpool fans, Liverpool uh, bench, They when he did the, he put his finger up to his lips. So they scored a controversial goal. I, you know, this, this is a distant memory now, so yeah, I'm not no, sure. Happened in the in the history of Jose Mourinho and antagonizing yeah. people he probably shouldn't be antagonizing. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure it did happen at one of the League Cup uh, finals. And then in Italy, uh, just to close out the news. Juventus closed the gap at the top of Syria uh, just one week before they play Inter Milan. But Conte side just like they they've. They've been on a long winning run that, that came to an end this midweek and, and Juve themselves ended uh, AC Milan's unbeaten run. So like a lot is kind of coming together here. It's going to be a big week for, for Syria. How do you see the, the Derby d'Italia 
going. I'm I have the impression that Inter will will prevail in it. Like pound for pound, Juventus are a better side. They have the experience. They have Cristiano Ronaldo. They have you know players in form like Chesney, Aaron Ramsey scoring goals now for them now, which is shocking in itself. They have the young, exciting players who probably won't get a, a shout in these matches. Um, but Inter Milan are a team, and they have a better system, and they have a better coach at the moment anyway in, in uh, Antonio Conte. And for that reason, I think it's the time has come for them. Like they, whether they can go on and, and and channel this into a full league win, I'm not sure. But I, I think they'll have all their eggs in this basket to try and beat Juventus at the at their own game this weekend, and really, you know, set a marker out for the rest of the season and for the rest of the league. Yeah, because what's interesting about this match is, is it was one of the first games actually affected by the pandemic. It was it was played behind closed doors back in in early March, late February, uh, and it was a pretty dull game uh, at the time, if I remember. So hopefully, hopefully this will be better. I suppose no, the teams are the teams. Well. Hmm. I'd say this is going to be pretty dull as well, to be honest. They'll be very cagey, but I think you'd... you'd hope that at least they're adjusted to playing behind closed doors right. now, considering they do it so frequently, but. Uh, I, I don't know. Like the this this is a historic match in Italian football. Like they are the two most successful teams in Syria history. So you know, there's a lot of bad blood there. You know, even just between Conte and Juventus, there's a lot of history there themselves. Um, there's. I was watching Inter play Roma actually over the weekend. It was a great game. Inter, like Inter are probably one of the most entertaining sides in Europe at the moment, just because they keep playing these absolutely mad games where they give away silly goals and then they go through the hard work of winning anyway. Um, like silly penalties as well. Like there's been stuff with Vidal giving away penalties and Conte yelling at uh, Vidal for arguing with the referee. He just wants him to play on and get over it, yeah. <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, but like the match against Roma it was just funny to see so many ex Premier League players in the game and so many ex Man United players. I think there were six on the field at one point uh, between the two sides. There was McTarian and Smalling for Roma, and then Sanchez, Young, Lukaku, and. Uh, I can't remember who the other one was now, but there, I think there was a fourth one. Darmian was the other one. Um, how Darmian ended up in Inter, I have no idea. But uh, like, it's just weird. Like this, hmm? he's well liked by Conte. But it's a it's a really weird Inter Milan side. Like it's put together in such a strange way. Like there's some absolute quality there. Like Lukaku and Latero Martinez up front is a really cool, really interesting and exciting uh, combination of strikers. Then Hakimi on the right is quite entertaining. Berea midfield is is a great player. But then they have just Alexander Kolarov, Ashley Young, uh, Handanovic still knocking about at the age of 40 years old. Uh, like they, they just make no sense whatsoever, but they're very entertaining at the same time. Uh, and then with Inter, like they, they haven't been too convincing under Pirlo. Like they've had one or two big wins, but... Uh, like I think the Barcelona matches in the Champions League really summed it up well. Like they, they lost one and won one, and they they were both convincing for the victor in in equal measure. Like they they can really go either way. Like and they they've had to absolutely dig their way through some of these games. Like they've they've struggled through a couple. They've drawn a lot of matches um, as well, yeah. which is quite strange. But uh, you know you can never count out Juve either, even with uh, no, the inexperienced managers that they have. They have the best squad easily. They just you just look through the subs bench and the the quality they have to bring on the people they signed over the summer when nobody else really had money and they were able to just splash the cash and they're not even getting game time for the team. It it is very much Pirlo finding his feet in managerial front. He doesn't really know how to set things up. But if he puts Cristiano Ronaldo, Aaron Ramsey, that ginger fella they have, I always forget his name, the right winger. Yes, if they put all of them onto the onto the side with Tabala and put them in that little gap between uh, that weird old Manchester United uh, defense and yeah. uh, the midfield, like they don't have a defensive midfield uh, inter, and that's really why they're sh- shedding so many goals. And I can see like Juventus taking a lot of chances in that match. Whether it's enough for them to actually win the game is another another question. But uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be an interesting watch if nothing else. Well, Tim, uh, that looked pretty good for you for quite a long time out there today. You, you must feel as if someone's just given you a hefty punch in the stomach. Yeah. I ain't never felt this bad either. We are almost at the halfway point of the Premier League season and yet only one club has decided a change of managers was necessary. This time last season, five managerial changes happened at the likes of Watford, Arsenal, Spurs, Everton and Watford. Why has this change occurred? Is it a one-off result of pandemic football or is this the beginning of a wider trend to give managers more time at the helm? 
it's a one-off uh, result of pandemic football. Uh, I think a lot of managers got a save, not a save execution is probably not the right term, but they got a they got a bit more leeway last summer given that they weren't able to make a huge amount of changes or signings. Uh, and they, they kind of get to roll into the new season with that with that attitude. Uh, I think only the relegated clubs really had uh, much ground to get, to get rid of a lot of their, their, their staff, really. And then this season, everyone's been given the benefit of the doubt. Oh, it's hard to play pandemic football. Oh, everyone's tired. Oh, everyone has excuses. We're losing players left, right and centre now. We're, and the managers really can't really do anything more than they have been doing, which is why we haven't seen a huge amount of change. That's why a team without a victory this season, there's no talk at all of... of um, I've forgotten his name. Not Chris Wilder. Chris Wilder. It is Chris Wilder. Hey, why Chris Wilder has not even a, there's no notion of him being sacked given that they have not won a game this season which wouldn't have been heard of in, in previous years there's also the fact that um, there's less matches have been played so far this season there's a lot more still to come in the second half of the season we're basically condensing two thirds of a season into a into a half so um, there'll be a lot of uh, activities uh, yet to happen but uh, for the most part I don't see many more changes happening between now and the end of the season um, bar really barren and terrible runs of, of matches so the likes are Mikel Arteta nearly had the likes of Frank Lampard have nearly had the likes of uh, well Mikel Arteta did have but our, you know Lampard has nearly had it um, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is always susceptible to them having as well but I don't see any major changes unless something goes really badly in one of those clubs in the mid-ranking teams I, I don't know is there anything like pick a manager in the mid-level who's doing a bad job like see Bruce isn't really doing a bad job you know and he would be one of the first you'd think might be might be susceptible to being sacked who else is in there that that is doing really badly I don't really know you know Scott Parker maybe but then at the same time who do you get to bring him to replace him you can't even get people in the UK at the moment yeah like it's it's interesting that it was Slavin Bilic that was the the only manager that's been like OS Brom and it was Big Sam that came in to replace him and Big Sam since is, you know, obviously I think Big Sam historically has kind of taken a few months to kind of get his get his game plan through to his team before they, they start playing the way that he wants them to and they start getting results, but it's not started off very well so far and Bilic was, you know, like there was a lot of the reaction to the Bilic one, you know, was that of kind of bemusement, I think. Like a lot of people were kind of surprised. Uh, I suppose they were just off the back of a decent result, one all draw at the Eddie had, but like they are down in the relegation blaze. Like it's it's pretty normal for a team down in the relegation fight to just change managers before the January transfer window. Like that's like, am I wrong? Is that not a thing that happens pretty much every season? Like we saw Watford twice last year. Um, so like it it is a thing that keeps happening, and it's kind of surprising that West Brom were the only team to kind of pull the trigger on that. Particularly like as you mentioned, Scott Parker. Like they started off terribly. Like they looked certain to barely win a game this season. Then they made a couple of the transfers. I I uh, I will admit, but uh, you know they they still are in 18th at the moment or 17th, like they're hovering around there. Um, and like we know, Fulham last time they came up went through basically and did what Watford did last year and sacked. They sacked Yukanovic, then they sacked Ranieri, and then they settled on Scott Parker once they were already down. And you know it's amazing Parker didn't get sacked through that early run just because of the reputation the Fulham have at the moment. Um, and then you're right, like Chris Wilder. It's it's interesting because last season uh, Norwich as well were in a similar position to Sheffield uh, United. They were slightly better off, but they were still pretty much known to be relegated at this stage of the season. And they stuck with Daniel Farka, and he's still manager now. And they're I think they're top of the championship at the moment. So I think some of these clubs with um, with uh, much less revenue to to fight with are accepting the fact that you know they have to just take in a couple of years of going up and going down with the same manager and hoping that he maintains the dressing room throughout and they can eventually build to something after maybe the third relegation. Like that seems to be the, the strategy at the moment because like it, as far as I can tell, like Chris Wilder is pretty secure in that job because of the job he had done up to that point. Like and, and, and in many ways, it does make sense. Like his CV is quite good for what he's done at Sheffield United. He got them two promotions, kept them up last season pretty comfortably. And then, like, do you sack them? Uh, do you sack a manager at the first sign of trouble? Like, it's hard to tell, especially at a club like Sheffield United, where, like, getting relegated isn't a huge surprise, like, even if they overachieved last year and getting, what was it, ninth or 10th last year. So in, in that sense, like, I kind of get why Sheffield United are sticking with them, and I, com- I commend them for doing that, because 
I think it's quite interesting that they they're keeping him and seeing how that will do next year uh, in the championship. Uh, but then, like you know, we got the likes of Brighton and Burnley who are down there as well. They're sticking with their man. Uh, I, I generally think Brighton are a pretty well-run club, and love the evidence of that. Uh, it, it's the fact that they, I think, have proven that they are well-run, well-run, and they play like they've gone for playing with nice football and playing in a smart way. Um, and for that reason, I think they will stick with Potter even if they go down. Deitch is in an odd position because he's been there so long. He's done a great job to keep them in the Premier League as long as they have. But they have new owners now. Um, and there's talks of a of a contract negotiation going on there. But, um, you know, maybe maybe it's a little early for that. Maybe see how he does over the next month. They have kind of turned their form around in the last month or so. Uh, to give him some credit, like they looked pretty desperate at the start of the season given, given the amount of injuries they had and the the results they were getting and they have turned that around and, and Dutch deserve, deserve some credit for that. But it'll be interesting to see, like, are they kind of one of the first teams to sack someone? Like, I know there's a lot of speculation on Lampard as well and Chelsea are always <laughs> going through managers. Uh, but other, yeah. other, other than those two managers, like, you're right, it's hard to see who else would really go at the moment. Like, no one else really seems. Like, Steve Bruce, I think, seems pretty safe. Ro- Roy Hodgson seems pretty yeah. secure. Crystal Palace. Like, it, it's quite weird. Like, I don't remember the Premier League ever really being in a place like that in recent memory or no, most not, of the managers. Yeah. Not in recent eight. memory. Like, in, in times gone by, 15, 20 years ago, it was a bit more like this when you'd, you wouldn't be looking for who's the next to be sacked. It would all be a surprise and something would have to go wrong at the club for, for someone to be sacked. And me, like, you're right. Maybe there is a trend back towards it, but I, I do feel that it's just, it's, it's a, it's an, it's an unusual, uh, congregation of factors that has led to this fact where nobody's really that susceptible to being sacked. Um, there, there's a while left in the season, as you said, so maybe that could all change. But yeah, it's it's unusual, but I don't see foresee it becoming a major trend once once things get back to normal. Hopefully next year. The the other point that I want to bring up as well is just when you think about like in at the height, I suppose, of when we would see the managerial merry go around really kicking the gear. You think of the managers that would that would come in and save the day at clubs. You've got Tony Pulis, Mark Hughes, uh, Alan Pardew, Big Sam. Like most of those have kind of shown that they're past it or they're not really yeah. Like they've they've not done well in the last few jobs. So other clubs now are wary of bringing them in. We just saw Tony Pulis get sacked at uh, Sheffield Wednesday after only ten games and they'd only won like one game or did they? I don't think even won one game. Uh, at Sheffield Wednesday so like they've shown that they the game has moved on past the need for these guys and they haven't really been replaced in in that sense like um like there's no there's no saviors there to to keep a team up now like they're if if I were to think of who would be available if a if a Premier League job became became uh ready for someone all I can think of is Eddie Howe is knocking about there needs to be a new generation of these save of these saviors like we have Currently, there's only Journeyman. two left. Yeah, exactly. We only have Big Sam and Big Dave Moyes left, and and maybe you can make an argument for Roy Hodgson of the of the of those big teams that are left, but um, of those big managers that are left of the of the saving variety. So maybe Eddie Howe has started that new generation, um, of of younger managers. Like I don't know who else is in that group yet. I'd say it's it's only just starting. Maybe other going to Solskjaer. Yeah, <laughs> After, you know he he came in and saved United from relegation that season. We we've seen him at Cardiff as well, you know. Uh, maybe maybe true, that's, true. that's the start of a of a new beautiful legacy for for Solskjaer. But uh, like it is it is it is funny. Like this, I suppose is a thing we all knew would happen someday, but we we weren't ready for it. Uh, you know, the last great memory of Pardew was him doing that dance at Wembley in the FA Cup final. That that was really his his goodbye to the beautiful game in in England and. Like Tony Pulis just kind of left. Like, what was his last Premier League job? Now was it at? It was at West Brom. West Brom, um, yeah, yeah. When when they went down, like that was curious. They they were so comfortably safe from relegation the year before they went down, and then they just didn't carry that form into the next season at all. And he's kind of lost his magic touch ever since then, um, which is interesting. And Mark Hughes um, kept Southampton up, but did it in a really abysmal way, and. Uh, he went, got relegated with Stoke as well after a decent tenure there. So like he's kind of fallen by the wayside there. Like I, I don't think he's had any managerial role since he left Southampton. Um, so <laughs> would we see the return of Mark Hughes this year? Maybe he's been long gone enough that 
someone might forgot might have forgotten that he even managed Southampton and he could sneak in that way. Uh, but yeah, it does seem like it's it's generally a good buy for that old generation of manager, which is it's going to be. Up, you know? Yeah, hey, Redknapp's long gone. Like, we haven't seen Redknapp in years now. He's king of the jungle more than he's anything else. Um, so, like, it, it's weird for football to kind of experience this, where the old generation of, of uh, like, mercenary for hire type manager is just gone. Like, we, and they haven't been replaced, which is just so weird. Like, you would think naturally they would just come through other journeyman midfielders or defenders from the mid 2000s, but. Tim Sherwood. Yeah, we're not really seeing like Tim Sherwood is the perfect example. Like we've not seen any other Tim Sherwoods. They're not taking over yet. The Tim Sherwoods, the Mark Hughes, they're all kind of drifted away now from the from the center. And the, the, there is you're, you've identified a gap in the market there, Declan. There is there is the world is crying out for the new journeyman manager to come in and get a club relegated. Mick McCarthy, where are you? He's enjoying the nice little pay package from uh, Applewell Nicosia. I suppose actually I, I've I've. There's three midfielders I can identify, but they're all in the lower leagues. Uh, there's Joey Barton, who just left Fleetwood Town recently. In mysterious circumstances. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't, you wouldn't have a lot of faith in Joey Barton to stay on board with anything. There's Lee Bowyer, who's done really well at Charlton. I don't know where yeah. he is now, actually. And then there's Kevin I'm Nolan. Charlton. I think he left Charlton, but there's Kevin Nolan knocking him out as well. Like, they're the three. And of course, Kevin Nolan would be one of the, the great disciple of uh, Big Sam. Uh, like they're the only ones I can really think of. Like Gary Monk's been around, but he's never really proven himself at a, at a Premier League level. Like you know, a lot of these guys are coming in at Championship level and and kind of settling there. Um, so you know, like it, it, it's it's gonna be fun to kind of see this new generation come through. Like, is it a case that the game has gotten too complex for these men? I don't know. Like, what's going on? Where where are they? They need to up their game. I'm sending out a challenge to any. Uh, journeyman midfielder that played in 2005 or 2008 to come forward and save the day at Fulham or I suppose Fulham Scott Parker so they're they're fine Uh, but you know Newcastle Crystal Palace come on take take the old men jobs I dare you you know come forward Uh, Matty Taylor where are you you know it's true. It's true. Lee Boyer is still the manager of Charlton Athletic. Is he still at Charlton? Okay. Yeah, they sure. lost Sackerton Stanley at the weekend. Ah, oh, poor Charlton. They they didn't deserve that. Like even Alan Kerbishley, where's he gone? He he's a weird career. Spent ages at Charlton, then left Charlton, then went to West Ham. Did a decent job at West Ham, from what I remember. Then That's left sad. West Ham. And then didn't do anything else after that. Just was like, okay, I've had my fun. Yeah, he got constructive dismissal from West Ham. So I think that resulted in him getting paid millions of pounds. So I think maybe that's what he's he's doing at the moment. He was a technical director at Fulham in that fun time with Felix McGah, if you remember. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, since then, he hasn't really done a huge amount since then uh it it doesn't he's in he's in touch with fulham i think it doesn't sit right with me that he never managed newcastle you know that just that doesn't square up with my understanding of reality could you imagine he he could still do it like he's still got time bring bring back alan kerbishley is the big message big curbs big Ah, I knew he would. He can't take it, can he? He can't take it. He just can't take it because we've out-tacticked him, we've out-witted him. Uh, you know what I mean? He just can't cope, can he? Like, you know, so. There's midweek Premier League action uh, coming up with uh, a bizarre, like, half game week coming up. It's I don't understand it, um, but... I suppose none of that really matters when you consider the big game on Sundays between the, the two top teams of the table. It's uh, it's the big one. Liverpool against uh, Man United and Anfield. How do you see that one going? If I'm... Given how this season has gone thus far, we probably shouldn't be predicting these things because we seem to always get them wrong and maybe we should go against their gut. My thoughts would be Liverpool to win it. They're a better side, even with their defensive frailties even with the fact that they played a half-decent side in the in the FA Cup in, in terms of what they put out in the field and in the end were comfortable enough. They seem a better side all around. I do think this Manchester United side can get at this Liverpool side. I think they have the pace, they have the counter-attacking verve to them. 
And if they go mano a mano with Liverpool, I think we'll have a contest on their sides. I just don't know if the bravery exists for Manchester United to do that. Yeah, because like we talked about this in the past when these two teams have met, like they they're obviously two historic rivals, two biggest clubs in England, uh, two most winningest teams, if you want to use that Americanism uh, in England. Like this should be England's version of the Classico. Uh, it's not really got a name, but no, it's the, the Mersey. Was it the Mersey? What is the name of this derby? I don't think it really has a name. Like, I've just, you know, Red Monday is kind of the way it's been marketed. Oh, God. Let's not uh, talk about Red Monday again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to bring up Red Monday. There's some uh, flashbacks to worser times than, uh, but like. The Northwest derby? Northwest, American. yeah. It's, it's, it's a weird one. Like, it's the fact that they've won 39 league titles between them, but like how often have they ever actually finished first and second or even first and third? Like they haven't had many intense title challenge matches between each other. Like the last one was 2009 when Liverpool won 4-1 at Old Trafford and then Man United ended up winning the league anyway. Um, Like they, they, they don't meet under this circumstances a lot, even if it is still the first half of the season. It's still 17 games in. Like, uh, May United play Burnley midweek. Like, they could be top, uh, clear at the top going into this game, which would be a big psychological edge for them, I think. And I think it's why this match is going ahead on, on Tuesday, because I think May United pushed for this game to happen before Liverpool won so that they could uh, potentially go ahead of them. Oh, really? <laughs> it would be a pretty uh, ironic thing for them to lose then to Burnley and end up behind Liverpool. That would be a pretty big blow. Um, which pr- pretty much is exactly what's going to happen now, just knowing uh, the way Man United have gone in recent years. Um, but, you know, like the last few meetings between these two teams have been pretty abysmal. Uh, the, the last match at Anfield, it was one of the last matches with the crowd um, back in February, I think, last year. Um, pretty comfortable 2-0 win for for Liverpool. They scored a last-minute winner from Mo Salah where he ran the length of the pitch and then Alisson joined him in celebration, uh, which was a pretty bizarre moment from Allison that he threw the ball to the start of the counter-attack and then ran the length of the field. Um, I think that went down well at the cup end uh, that that time. But other than that, like they played out a bunch of nil-all draws. It was 1-1 at Old Trafford last year as well in that weird game where Man United were for ages the only team to even get points off Liverpool, um, which was really a damning indictment of the rest of the league at the time. But uh, you'd expect this to be a bit of a better match, I would guess. Like, it could end yeah. up being a boring nil-all like the Manchester Derby. No, like, no. Like that Chelsea game. But you'd hope that it will be a bit more interesting than that because, you know, this is a good opportunity for both sides. Like, if they get a win here, it would be big. But I suppose, is winning less important than losing this game, do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. At this point in the in the season, like Liverpool cannot like they can because of the way the season is. But in, in theory, Liverpool cannot afford to lose any more points to to Man City, given Man City's you know consistent form over the last while. But the, I think both teams can afford to lose this match and still be in with a shout. You know, Liverpool obviously, Manchester United maybe less obviously. Um, I, I I foresee it being a relatively open game. I think. United play one way and that's counter-attacking football. It, it, it turns into dour or terribleness when they play against a team who sit back and, and absorb Manchester United and, and don't let them counter-attack them. But against a side like Liverpool who will press, who will dominate the ball, I think United will have their opportunities, especially against the, you know this depleted Liverpool defence. And it, it, it spells for some goals, really, because although United have had a good enough defensive record in recent times, I, I, I still don't really trust them. And uh, I, I think this uh, Liverpool attack in whatever configuration, and it will be a full attack. I don't think there's any there's any injury concerns on the Liverpool attacking side of things. I think that they could really pick apart this United side. But in, in the same, exact same breath, if you put Marcus Rashford or Antti Martial having a, a 20, 30-yard run and Fabinho with a ball played over the top, I think, you know, odds on on, on one of those Man United players scoring. Yeah, like if I know Pogba's a bit of an injury concern at the moment, but if him and Bruno Fernandes play, like you'd imagine that they would have a lot of joy in hitting balls over the top for, as you mentioned, Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial. Like they, like it's what they're good at. Like we've seen Rashford pick up a ball from from the air and touch it down quite well and then strike it like, at, at an acute angle. Like he's done it in big games as well. He's got goals 
against Liverpool as well. I don't know if he ever scored at Anfield actually, but he's got big big goals against Liverpool as well uh, in his locker. So like this could be very exciting. Like we've seen what happens when a team plays into Man United's hands. Like well, not necessarily plays into Man United's hands, but like plays into their game and goes at them. Uh, you know, we saw it in the Leeds game. Like that was an open open game that could have ended any result. Um, we've seen it in the past with Man City. We didn't see it this year, obviously. Um, so, like, you know, hopefully Liverpool do go out and, and gung-ho approach with this one and may not respond in kind because I think we could get some fireworks uh, in that case. And Liverpool have a fantastic record at Anfield as well. Like, Maynard will want yeah. to, to end that and, and Liverpool will want to secure that against their rivals. Like, three points here would be absolutely massive. Like, if Maynard beat... Burnley and then beat Liverpool like that's six points ahead uh, with the same amount of games like that that's a potentially huge huge week for Solskjaer but at the same time if he goes out and loses both of these games it's it's a huge week for him but in a very different sense absolutely and it it could well I don't think it'll define the season it could you know it could be one of the most memorable parts of the season for the club yeah, and let's hope uh, let's hope to expectation is uh, like for once I'm actually kind of looking forward to this game because normally it's a bit like you know Red Monday where it's like oh god yeah. they're building this up in a really annoying way and it ends up being really deflate deflated flat game and nothing really happens so hopefully it lives up to expectations. The four one at uh, at Old Trafford in two thousand nine was uh, exciting. Maybe we'll see another four one here. Uh, I think that would be a pretty big result. Whoever got it. Yeah, uh, I I don't think it it'll happen that way. I think it'll be closer, but yeah, it'll. I think I foresee there being chances and it being relatively open, much better than say the other big matches we've seen so far this season, which have been a very cagey affairs. Anyways, it might end up being a, a battle between Allison and uh, David de Gea. Uh, you know, True. which one kind of steps up more? Uh, you'd back Allison right now, but uh, you never know with de Gea. Maybe he'll he'll pull out something like at his best. De Gea was obviously a fantastic keeper, so if you can. If he used to pick one game to refine that form, uh, this would be a pretty big one. Yeah, like I, I personally believe David De Gea is a better shot stopper than Allison, but Allison is a better footballer. You know, he's a better all around player. He can pass the ball, he can distribute well, he can save, he commands the box, he organizes well. I don't think De Gea has that skill set, but De Gea still has it in him to be the difference between Manchester United winning or losing a match. He, I think he's already proven that this season on a couple of occasions where he has been on form. Um, he also has been off form on a couple of occasions as well as, as it's likely to happen as he gets older but you're right it, it could be a very much a, a toss-up between the two keepers because there will be a lot of chances in this match I think yeah and uh, I'm looking forward to it now and uh, we'll, we'll have a lot to say about it next week I'm sure but until then thank you for being here Andrew thank you for having me Declan and uh, we'll be back again next week thank you for listening If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to tell your family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. The show can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. You can also subscribe to my own Substack at declanhart.substack.com, where I publish two weekly newsletters that will often go further in-depth on topics discussed during our shows. Those pieces can also be found on Medium at medium.com slash at cheesyheartpun, H-I-R-T-E. You can also follow Andrew on Twitter at Kanban27 and myself at CheesyArchbun. Most of all, thank you for listening and we hope to be in your download feed next week too. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.